Hi everyone, this is Daniela. I'm super excited to open up this podcast with an incredible storyteller, a Nat Geo explorer, who will be telling us all about the circular economy in an island in Asia. This is an incredible topic to start off with because even though it could come across as abstract and too big to handle, it's actually something that we can all look at differently, especially when it comes to supply chains. There's so much talk about where our uh, products come from, how cheap labor can be, and in trying to be more aware of what we're consuming, it's also really good to take the time to listen to someone who is almost every day going through experiencing and seeing, documenting, and, and mixing in with her life what it means to live in a, in a place where a circular and regenerative economy is actively being applied which is incredible and super interesting and I hope you enjoy this and it would be incredible to know your thoughts if you have any questions please reach out and let's get started welcome Lily I'm really excited to have this conversation with you I've been thinking about this for the last few weeks I think we should just jump in and start off with an introduction of who you are Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's do it. Um, hi, Danielle. Hi, everyone who's listening to this podcast. Uh, my name is Lily Gall Lily Sedica. I'm a National Geographic Explorer and Multimedia Storyteller at the intersection of culture, identity, and the environment. Sometimes I like to call myself a human geographer, meaning the way I do storytelling is I go to a place, I live in that space, I get to know its people, its language, its culture. And through that kind of like personal lived experience and those relationships that I develop, It can tell stories. And those stories are generally at the intersection of people's lives and the environment. So their identity and their culture and the environment. And the last several years have actually focused on waste management, which has gone into plastic recycling and what does it mean after we throw things away. And that kind of has evolved into a long-term research project, which I'm currently working on now with National Geographic on a storytelling grant on the circular economy. And I'm sure we'll get right into that. Um, but I'm really excited. I'm calling from the south part of Taiwan. Um, it is an island located off the southeastern coast of China. Um, two thirds of it is covered in mountains. I'm currently on the western side in the rolling plains in a southern city called Kaohsiung. And it's warm and I love the warmth and I'm very excited to talk to you about it. Could you start by telling us this incredible story of the... Um the tea that you were drinking in California and how that took you down the path of circular economy. Sure. So a lot of my work at present time is based out of Taiwan. And when people look at me, they're like, like where, where do you come from? And I always do this thing where I'm like, oh, guess where do you think I come from? And a lot of Taiwanese people think that I'm European. And finally it gets on to the point that I'm American. And they kind of have this question of, well, why did you come to Taiwan? And I always have this joke that I tell people that actually is quite true. It's like I came to this place by means of boba milk tea. So Junjun Aicha. I actually grew up in San Diego, California, and down the street from my father's apartment was a Taiwanese tea house. 
And so I used to go there almost every day after school, middle school, and then high school, and each time ordered a large boba milk tea with half sugar uh, and would sit by this orange chair by the window. And that was like a really stable place in my life. And the tea was a really big part of me growing up. So I used to write like love letters there and I applied to college there. And then when I actually graduated from college and I came back um, to my hometown, I asked myself, you know, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And it was actually in that tea house um, when I was pondering this question that I reached for my little milk tea. And up until that time, um, it would always come in this single-use plastic cup and single-use plastic straw, and they were both colorful, and it was cute, and you could squeeze them, and the bubble would come out really easily. And I didn't really think too much about the environmental footprint of me consuming my favorite drink in the whole wide world, right? Because you're just there, and it tastes sweet, and you feel good, and life is great. Um, but it was in that moment when I was kind of grappling with that big existential question of what do I do now um, that I finally saw the single-use plastic cup, and I finally saw the single-use plastic straw, and I turned around to the trash can behind me, and it was filled to the brim of single-use plastic cups and straws. And I realized that every single time that I was drinking the drink that I love, I'm harming the environment that I love. And I was kind of culturally complicit in this way of behaving, which is, you know, everyone around you is consuming things, and when you finish them, you, you throw whatever you have left over away, right? You don't really think about the implications of that. Well, the choices you make because they're so complicit in the way that we live. Um, but I guess I was just at a stage in my life where I was really starting to question these very basic things and wanting to do more. Uh, and when I came to that realization, I realized, you know, these tea, this, these cups, these straws, they all come from Taiwan and then they end up in an American landfill or, you know, God forbid, in, in the ocean somewhere. Um, so I realized that there was kind of this international plastic supply chain that was connecting my hometown to this island 7,000 miles away across the Pacific. So it really motivated me to want to go there and kind of understand this relationship that we had by means of bubble tea and by plastic. And I applied for a Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellowship. And they gave this person who didn't have a background in storytelling or photography or anything, who had like a crazy idea and who like flew across the country in a single day to have a 15 minute presentation and then fly right back, um, the opportunity to pursue this idea and this dream that I had of wanting to make a difference and applying my life in a way that I felt mattered. Um, and learning and continuing to learn, which is something really important that I think adults should do after they, they go to school. So that's what brought me here. And that journey allowed me to understand Taiwan's waste management system. So I followed trash trucks in a variety of cities and counties, both in the countryside and on the west and eastern parts of the island, um, up and down mountains, went to incinerators, went to recycling factories, and talked with a lot of people who not only recycle plastics, but also make them. And then this led into a conversation of circularity um, and circular economy, which is the idea of, oh, so we can take our resources and we can use them more than one time. We can design waste out, we can design pollution out, we have the potential to do more things with our things. And there were a lot of people who were experimenting with that idea. And so I wanted to apply for another grant to come back out here again and to really focus all my energy on what the heck this idea was and how people were implementing it. So here we are. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, long story. <laughs> Pretty much like the last like 10 years of my life. Yeah. Oh, it's been a while. Yeah, it yeah. has. So... 
how is the circular economy different in Taiwan to what it is in the U.S. or in Europe? And and honestly, why Taiwan? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I I think it's really important first to say that we spent a lot of time in Taiwan and studying this concept here. So. I haven't spent as much time in the United States or in Europe. So I've read papers, but my perspective can only be as strong from where I am because I'm a lived experience storyteller. Um, so why Taiwan? I think, number one, that Asia has the highest population density in the world, A. B, it is the region in the world that is the most susceptible to climate change and climate vulnerabilities. And C, it is the area that I believe also, and there's a lot of work in the UN around this as well, about people trying to create solutions for climate change. So not only are the disadvantages high, but the opportunity for innovation and for resilience is also extremely high here. And I think, you know, studying political economy in university and really thinking about international relations, because I had a dream of going into the foreign service, I really come to understand that Western ideas, when they're trying to be adopted in other places, don't always work because they don't necessarily fit the cultural or geographic or social implications of how life exists in other places. So why not go to a place that has a lot of innovation, that has a lot of ideas, that really wants to make a difference and understand this concept from a very local perspective? And I think that if you know Asia is going to take the charge with climate change initiatives, then a lot of those ideas must be driven by Asian-based nations. Um, and they have to be... Um, understood locally and geographically. So uh, I think Europe has done a lot of really incredible things with the circular economy. I know the Elmer Arthur Foundation has been doing excellent work there. Um, there's a lot of policies that are trying to gear the European Union towards being a green economy. Um, many of the statistics say that there's a $4.5 billion um, uh, kind of thing that we can realize if we move towards a circular economy. Um, and in the United States, you know, you have closed loop partners, which is one of the first circular economy investment firms that exist in the world. And they're really putting a lot of money in trying to support those ideas and bring those ideas to light. And we have technology and we have, you know, slow moving but right to repair movements in the United States that are kind of like the first tick towards circular economy on a policy level. But I think Taiwan is just so advanced in terms of integrating circular economy into policy having top level people in government and in corporations like really drive this idea home and actually put the money and the willingness towards taking this idea seriously and making entire business models around it because they see the potential not only for the environmental impact, but for the, the capital and the profit they might be able to receive. And you're already seeing those kinds of revenues being gained by being innovative. And here in Taiwan, the idea is investing in the circular economy is investing in Taiwan's future which I find is, is really interesting and really strong. Finally, the last point that I'll share is Taiwan is considered an OEM, so original equipment manufacturer, and an ODM, original design manufacturer um, place. And it's one of the areas in the world that has the closest link in the supply chain between raw material providers and then also brands. So Taiwan is known to produce a lot of textiles. It's also known to, known to produce a lot of optics and uh, semiconductor pieces. Um, they do a lot of stuff for automobile industries in Europe, in the United States. So they're really in the center of so many international supply chains 
They've got really strong capacity with technology, really educated people, and they've been doing it for such a long period of time that their, their position in the center of international supply chain allows for them to play with these ideas, to drive circularity from a manufacturing side, so it's not just a design-based or a brand-based thing, to be able to try and influence both the raw supply materials, people, and then also the brands themselves. So there's a lot of pressure but there's a lot of really interesting positioning that's happening to try and make a difference in their own way. And so for those many reasons, that's why I chose Taiwan. Also bubble tea. <laughs> so in the conversation basically is a lot more sophisticated in what, um, in what people and brands and different corporations can do to get involved in building a more sustainable economy. Yeah, I would say too that um, industry drives a big part of it, but also you really need to have strong policies and you have to have government support because mm -hmm. a lot of here, the innovation and the investment comes from the government. So in 2016, um, President Tsai Ing-wen announced the five plus two innovative industries policy where one of them was to try and use the circular economy concept to drive Taiwan to being Asia's Silicon Valley, among many other things. So it's been a lot of investment and support behind this idea where every government office has a circular economy like team. Um, they were able to take this giant AI-based integrated database they created for all the different waste materials. Um, Taiwan has a very advanced um, waste management infrastructure that's based on policy. It's called the four-in-one recycling program. So essentially they can they know where waste is coming from, they know how to track it. And then they were able to take that entire like database and then transform it into a circular economy brand matchmaking database. So if this company is producing waste here and this company needs this product, oh, where can we bring these together and find a way to circulate those resources? Also, Taiwan has to import about 90% of its food and about 80% of its energy needs and mineral needs. So um, there's a lot of emphasis on trying to create those circular links. Um, so there's government support. And then, yes, there's a lot of corporate support as well. I mean, not everybody. I don't want to say like everyone's like, yeah, on board, um, because, you know, there are certain people who believe that you got to put circularity in an ESG port, report and then you sign off on the report and then that's done. But I've had the fortune of meeting many people, um, both in small companies and in large companies, um, who want to take this seriously. And if there's anything that I've learned through storytelling is things only work when people really believe in what they're trying to pursue. Then um, you need that willingness. You also need the capital. That capital without willingness will do nothing. Willingness without capital will also do nothing. So here you see a mixture of both of those things. And I think that's what makes this place really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what have you seen on the ground, like with the people in working within the supply chain? What is it that you have seen that has has given you so much, so much for for basically? Um, I lost my words. <laughs> that has given you so much for the understanding of circular economy and how it can be implemented and what recommendations you can give um, to companies outside of the small island? For sure. So I think a lot of this is definitely driven by the people that I've met here. 
Like I can think of just like seven or eight people off the top of my head who are trying to build a circular supply chain. So when we think about circularity, idea, the idea again is how do we design out waste and pollution? That's through design. How do we create things that are modular, making them easy to assemble and then disassemble after their end of life or end of use so they can be repurposed and easily recycled in a different way? And then from a consumer perspective or like an individual perspective, it's instead of buying things, can you rent them? Can you share them? Instead of purchasing an AC, can you rent the service of the air conditioner so that the responsibility of if the AC breaks isn't no longer on the homeowner or the AC owner, it's on the company to come and fix it. So this idea of moving to product as service versus product as owned um, and the emphasis on design so I say those things to preface this, that many of my friends here who I've really, really come to learn more about and respect, take one position in either design, material, or waste that they then use into production. So from a design perspective, there are many Taiwanese designers who are building up a community of people within the design space um, to focus on designing things from the onset with recycled materials. So like... In Taiwan, for instance, you have a lot of oyster shells and you take the oyster and then you kind of chuck the shell and that creates a problem. But you can use that shell, grind it down into various powders. You can use it for many, many different types of things like antimicrobial plastics, all sorts of things. So the designers are getting the sustainable material. They're thinking about how can they make modular pieces where, you know, you want to have like a building that's made from 1.5 million plastic bottles you don't need to do that with glue or nails. You can just stack them together and they're locked into place and they're earthquake proof. Um, and then when you're done, you can unclip them and, re and pull them apart for reuse. So there's several people in design who are doing that. I can think of my friend Poe, who's kind of leading the charge here with bringing together all the designers. I can think of my friend Dr. Cole, who's a professor here at NCKU. National Chungkong University, who for the last 10 years after his PhD thesis, figured out a way to recycle the reservoir silt in reservoirs. As you know, um, if you have lots of silt going into the reservoir, then you have less water capacity. So he's found a way to take the silt that runs in, transform it into a building material that helps with effervescence, that helps prevent any sort of, um, they call it the, the cancer material that comes when humidity goes into concrete and creates cracks and uh, uh, becomes unstable and also kind of ugly. So he takes that material and makes it into new things. So you have design, you have material, then you have production. So one of my friends runs a company called E-Chain. His name is Martin Sue, and they take um, recycled textiles and work within their partners, Far Eastern New Century being one, IKEA being another, where they take these products, they break down the textiles, they remake them into new textiles, oftentimes from regenerative methods, oftentimes for room recycled methods, and then you can just make them into Nike shoes or make them into Adidas shoes. So you have an upcycling, you have recycling, you have folks on material, and you have folks on design. So I've met people in every single stage, and I could list many, many more, who are really trying to hone in on what are these three elements, design, material, and waste or production, and then put it all together in a circular supply chain by connecting themselves to one another and by, you know, building the relationship-based network that you can then say, okay, you want to build a museum, we can use these materials and it doesn't have to be any sort of waste involved. And they can do that. That is so interesting. I had no idea about 
the building with plastic. <laughs> Crazy. You can make, like, I, I went to many, the company that made it is amazing. Was, they're really famous here and also across Asia. They've built like mainstream infrastructures, like <laughs> big buildings. They're in the process of making parts of airports. Um, they made like hospital modular units for COVID-19 ward victims out of like medical masks. They have, they can take jeans and make sheets, um, seats out of them. You know, the Nike shoes, the shoelaces, you could take those shoelaces and make chairs. Like many of these materials have the potential to become really anything. In the same way we look at like raw or precious materials that we mine from the earth, we have so many, each one of them, whether it's, you know, gold or silver or copper, has the potential to do so many different things and they have so many different properties associated with them. And then you just kind of mix them together and you make your thing. Well, it's taking that same kind of chemical design prospect and applying it to things that we already have. Uh, and being able to do almost the same thing, but in a world where we can see it more. Yeah. Yeah, which is, which I think is very different to this thing that I hear a lot here, which is about um, buying secondhand clothes or, well, not purchasing more, more clothes, uh, which is also a, a good way of approaching it, but how do you tell someone that maybe is not in the same living situation that they should be using hand-me-downs instead of, you know, getting new stuff if they can or if they would yeah. want to? Yeah. And that's kind of asking people. It's kind of making an assumption of where you are in your life and what you identify as. Um, you know, when you're trying to send a big environmental message out to a large group of people, you kind of take the middle road. Well, that idea is you're middle class, you have disposable income to buy new things, you like buying new things, and you want to keep up, keep up with the latest fashions. Um, and that can be in any country, in any culture, but it doesn't necessarily apply to everyone in every space, right? I think what makes Taiwan interesting is you have a very strong manufacturing element. You have a very strong like consumer element in like, the big cities. And many people who fall within the consumer production identity line Um, on an economic level, and then, of course, we're all just people in different places of our lives, right? So when you ask people to do things that would help accelerate the circular economy, one of them comes from innovation. Two of them is asking people to, you know, buy secondhand. But a lot of it has to come with our relationships to each other and our relationships to the world around us. And really, where do we want to expend the energy for how we want to live? You know, certain people don't actually create a very a large carbon footprint because of their circumstances or where they live. Other people create a larger one. And so, you know, when you ask that question, you can't assume that that answer is going to be the same for everybody in every environmental or economic circumstance. That all you can do is give people information and then allow them to take the information and apply it in their lives in the best way that they can. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, could you, could you talk a, a bit more about about the importance of the supply chain? Sure. Um, so everything that we use in our modern society today um, is made from somewhere. And generally, it's not made from one place. It's made from a composite of pieces that are each made in a separate factory, perhaps in different countries, perhaps in the same. So when we get like our iPhone, for instance, or our computers, Um, when we go to the grocery store in the UK and get bananas or avocados from Peru, 
you know, the supply chain either brings things to markets, to people, and in the process of bringing the product to a person, prior to that, there's a whole process and a series of steps and factories and peoples and contracts and companies that build every little piece that comes becomes that composite. So um, when we think about the clothes, for instance, we just think about what we find on a rack, but a supply chain is that you need to grow the cotton or you need to have the synthetic fibers from a, live, from a, from a laboratory. Then from those raw materials, you then send it to a textile firm. A textile firm then decides, you know, do they want to add anything to the material for durability, for sweat wick? Do you want to dye any of the material to keep it color? Do you want to add any buttons or zippers? And each company has a particular place in putting all those pieces together. And then you have a logistics company who takes that and brings it to the marketplace. So the supply chain is extraordinarily important. And we often don't see it unless you work in it. And if you work in it, you often can't see beyond that piece that you play a part of. You're not necessarily sure, aside from where the material comes from, what happens prior, or you're not necessarily sure what happens to the material after. Otherwise, knowing that this is your piece in the supply chain. Likewise, whether you're in the middle of supply chain or at the very end on the consumer tip, you don't really see what happens before or after. And I think it's that myopic um, tendency that we've developed that has caused us to not necessarily be aware of the environmental or human or cultural implications of our things, or to be aware of the incredible international connectivity that we have to different people and places around the world because of those things. Um, so we've done a really incredible job as a species for connecting so many different companies and languages and places by means of things. Um, so a supply chain is very important and we're thinking about circular economy Right now, we have a supply chain or an economic system in general that takes things from the earth. Generally, we mine materials or um, we make synthetic fibers or polymers in laboratories. And then we make products that then get sent to a consumer. The consumer uses it. Once they use it, they throw it away and that just goes straight into a landfill or an incinerator. So it's a very A, B, C type of process and we call it a linear um, economic system. So when we're thinking about supply chain, we're thinking about circularity, the question is, well, how do we take this linear thing, bend it and make it a circle so that it really fully reflects kind of the ecological nature of life on Earth, which is life cycle, which is the connectivity to different life forms on Earth, the different stages of life that we as humans even go through. Um, so if our materials can be seen as having chapters of our lives like us, maybe they have the potential to be more than just one thing at one point in that linear supply chain. So a circular supply chain allows you to take a material and from either its inception of how you want it designed or even the basic material itself, can you find ways to give it a new life at every stage? And it's thinking through its connections to other beings on this planet, its connections to what it could become that allows us to create that full circle. So the supply chain is super important for not only how we live today, but also how they have the potential to live tomorrow. Yeah, and with with this being implemented more in Taiwan, um, would the would the way like the relationship Asian countries have to Europe when it comes to manufacturing 
would basically the example of Taiwan be like bleeding out into other countries around it? I think that's the idea, right? Like if it's an Asian-led idea, could it influence and inspire other folks in other Asian nations or and then other folks in other parts of the world? It's like, oh, wow, this can really work. Oh, wow, this can make us money. Oh, wow, this is good for our people in the environment. Maybe we should give it a shot. But I think I will say that um, even on an island, a lot of people in Taiwan are not aware that all this stuff is happening, like on their island. Like I've talked to many just people just walking down the street and they're like, oh, where are you from? And we have conversation and I was like, I'm doing this research. They're like, what? Taiwan has this stuff too? I always thought it was a European thing. Or many of the professors that like I talked to down south here who are doing work in the circular economy, like have the hope and the goal of wanting to work with colleagues across Thailand or across Europe, um, Vietnam. But again, the idea is, oh, well, Taiwan's still very much in like the beginning stages. So we have to like, you know, take take small steps to get there. And there's almost this hesitancy and there's almost this lack of belief that I've found in different places and in different people. Um, but because the idea is you have an idea and you want to scale it, right? But you have to make the idea work first and work fully. And maybe it's worked a little bit, um, but you don't want to say, particularly in East Asian cultures, you don't want to say that this idea works works if it's only worked a little bit or in a certain context because you don't want to come off as being wrong. So I think that's where it helps for me to be kind of an outsider and to have a different perspective, which I'm saying, this is amazing. These are really cool things. Like there's a lot of innovation here. Um, maybe I can help share that. And by sharing it, even if it's a nascent stage, even if it's not a mental state, even if it's just an idea, can that idea inspire people to do things differently? Because I fundamentally believe it has everything to do with willingness and capital, of course, but it has to do at that the junction of creativity and innovation. Can we imagine a different way of living? Can we imagine a different way of producing things? Can we try things differently? Now, oftentimes we don't because we know what works or because we don't have any other ideas. So if we can show a different idea that works, then maybe we have a chance. And I feel like that's my role here. That's such a beautiful role. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I hope it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And do you think, do you think it's just an idea in Taiwan? Like what stage do you see it in? You know, I, I think it really depends on fundamentally what you believe in and what your government's willing to put money behind and how far are you as an individual willing to go and how many friends can you make in the process to make a difference? Like, I think what makes, I'll, I'll, sounds like a weird idea, but you know how anime is really popular? Like we think of stories like One Piece or Naruto where these individuals go on adventures and they're able to like fight the bad guys. The only really reason I, I think that makes those shows so incredibly amazing is because literally they're people who go out and they make friends and they build this team of friendship where they across the world. And because they all share a common value set, they're able to pursue what they want to pursue and they're able to see change because they're all working together. And I think that it's not just an idea because if it was just an idea, people would be thinking about it and not doing anything. But here, even if it's a small percentage of people, there are people who are connected and who are doing things and are trying to push the needle in a certain way. And yes, there may be limitations on how much you scale or 
you know, what your capital is. But I think in a world today, the feeling to me is, and I can only speak for myself, that climate change is here, it's happening, we're not doing anything about it, we're just talking about it. And there's this kind of acceptance of like, well, we're shit out of luck, everybody, because no one wants to make the change we want to see. And then I see my friends Poe and Jimmy and An An and Dr. Cole, and I see my friends at the recycling diaper factory, like Michael and Jackie. Uh, and I see my friends at Renato Lab who are taking like waste items and making them into new architecture and new buildings. Um, and I see all these people, and I am astounded by what they're doing on an innovation level. And I am in inspired by what they're doing on a human level because they're doing it. And yeah, it's hard. And yeah, a lot of us don't have a lot of money, but they're doing it because they believe in it and because they know it's the right thing to do. And they have the support of their families that, or some of them have the support of just their friends, but they're there and they're in it together and they're trying. And even if their impact is small, even if it's not scalable, even if they don't make a lot out of it, they're out there and they're doing the work. And that's the work that we need everybody to do. You know, you don't have to be a, a corporation or in government to make that change. So if that's the case, then we should all be doing that kind of stuff. We should all be getting with our friends and trying to build something together, however small. And I, I strongly believe that if you have people who do that, you have those small communities and those small pockets that exist in every place in the world, then you can make a difference. And if you can't make the scale of difference that you want, at least you can say you tried and your life had meaning. And you push towards that. And I think having that kind of energy in a world that feels so weighted down all the time is the greatest power that any individual, any team, any group of people can have. Yeah. And I think what stands out for me more is that you're saying that this is coming from the very bottom of the supply chain, that it's starting from the very creation of the little parts that then make a bigger piece. It's not starting from, let's create this massive, innovative thing that then no one can afford, <laughs> or it's hard to implement because it's just, who will be consuming it? Absolutely. I think oftentimes we look towards brands as being leaders nowadays, you know, people who have capital, people who have means of power. Um, and that kind of takes away from the fact that like, yes, there are people who have ideas who can do it too, regardless of where you are in that supply chain. So I really want to uplift the point that you made that there are people in the supply chain who want to make the, their both their product and their process fully circular. Can we have zero waste? Can we have zero carbon emissions? Can we have um, an opportunity to create and design things that can move through different spaces and different lives through different partnerships. You know, the one of the largest government-owned companies, China Steel, takes the steam gas that would ultimately have gone out into the atmosphere and funnel it through like tens of kilometers underground to a nearby factory in a different industry. And they use that steam engine to steam energy to heat up and use as energy for their own production processes. So it's possible. <laughs> Maybe you're a big company or maybe you're a small person who has a dream, but people want to see it happen. And I think if you want to see it happen, and you're trying towards it. That's ultimately what matters. And it doesn't have to be someone telling you what to do. You know, you can be in a position where you're in a very competitive economic market where, you know, the brand might choose to go with somebody else, but you're saying, no, what makes us distinct is our value set and how our processes are different. 
and with growing climate-related dis financial disclosures and growing net zero like commitments, people in the supply chain are going to have a really big impact on how those big brands are able to reduce their carbon footprint. So if it starts bottom up, actually, it's a lot stronger and more powerful than if it's just brand imposed down the supply chain. That reminded me of how policies sometimes don't really consider what is happening in real life. And that can also be uh, not detrimental, but just hard for people to actually implement or the ideas to be executed in a way that is actually sustainable and that makes sense for those that are um, living through whatever it is that the policy is trying to change. Yeah, I think policy is a really interesting tool because I think it's also a little cultural in that you live in a rule of law society and your policy dictates a certain thing. What that means is there's either a body of people who are investigating from government level that allows you to implement certain things, that there's money behind the idea. And then how much does it actually affect people? Well, it really depends on the communication of that policy to its people and the implication on their respective lives. I think policy, you know, uh, really affects industry very strongly because it is necessary for any entity to follow certain rules. Um, they can get access to benefits. They can get access to consequences. Um, but for the everyday person, um, unless it's a rule that is very, very explicit, it may not necessarily affect their lives in an immediate way. Maybe it takes time. Maybe it has to filter through many different parties or organizations. Um, and it is, I think this insistency on just policy as a tool or insistency as just corporate as a tool or the insistency on just nonprofits as a tool, I think we have to be aware that it, it, it is an integration of all these different entities acting upon one another and to recognize that we should be aware of what's happening in the world and what our nations or our communities want to push forward. Um, but if you're really trying to activate everybody, then policy, again, is just one tool of communication or one way of guiding, way of doing things that may not reach certain people in certain communities because they're so far away from their capitals. Um, or maybe it does. I think we have to see it as a tool um, and we have to see it as a way of affecting certain entities more strongly than others. But again, if you're trying to reach the person on the street or the person in the village or the person who lives far away from the mainstreams of capital, we have to understand and try to apply other more cultural ways of making that communication known, making that direction known, making that, that funding known so that people are aware of what's happening in their lives and then they can either contribute to it in a positive sense, you know? Mm. Yeah, which is, I think, maybe the essence of trying to, or, or the essence of communicating that it's so important to get communities, pockets of communities involved, to make it into basically something that everyone is excited about and not so much pressured and forced into doing in a way that doesn't work for them. Yeah, 100%. And I think we're talking about like holistic community integration. I, I'm a big believer that forcing people to do things is 
not as effective as allowing people to believe that they are a part of the future you want to build together. Um, I think that's where storytelling, things that you and I do is really important because it holds the power to unlock the human heart and to motivate the human spirit, to give people purpose and meaning and to feel like they have ownership and power and that they too can contribute. And uh, I think when we think about climate change, we think about these abstract ideas like circular economy, there's no real feeling of, yeah, we got this. Like, we got a blueprint for the future. Like, we can live on planet Earth. I mean, I don't think I've heard anybody in the last 10 years and especially last five years be like, you know what? Go humans. We got it. And personally, I think it's because we don't have a clear vision for the future that everybody feels that they can participate in. You either just live in your life and doing the work grind thing and then just trying to have a little bit of enjoyment from watching TV or being with your family, or you're stuck in a really negative environment and you're kind of feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders. What if we created an origin story for our future that people could believe in, people could feel that they can contribute to? And that story takes different forms for different people in different places and different cultures and different environments, but it's a story that we can do and we have hope towards. Um, and I think that's that's where where we see ourselves. And I'll speak for myself. It's where I see myself is how can I contribute to the conversation around climate change? Well, I'm, I'm not a scientist and I'm not very good at innovating things per se when it comes to, you know, chemical reactions. But I think what I'm good at is making friends and listening to people and I think giving them the encouragement that they need to keep going. And if you can give somebody that time and that space and that encouragement, it can really do wonders for their life. And in a clim climate where, no pun intended, where things don't feel so good, what if we can give people something they could look forward to and they could see themselves contributing to? Not just a vision, but a vision that they can give their lives to. And I think that's where a lot of nation building happened. Like I think of Singapore. Singapore went in 50 years from Medflats to a metropolis because their people were all about building the nation. And that was everything to them. And that experiment worked really well. Um, so why don't we give that to people? And of course, I say that with the caveat of knowing that stories and that kind of motivation can push people to do things that are dangerous and push people to control people in different ways. I know storytelling is not this like nice thing. It is also a very powerful thing that has negative com complications. But for me, at least in the work that I'm trying to do, why can't I create a story for the future that people can see themselves being a part of? And why not share that story with others in both the digital and the physical world? Because no digital story will have the impact that it needs and a digital story needs the physical impact on the ground. And the physical impact on the ground can support the scale on the digital side. So that's kind of where I see where I'm at. <laughs> and how important it is to communicate that through a perspective in Asia. Because, I mean, at least in Latin America, I've always heard that Asia is where the worst products are produced. Like no one wants to, every time you see made in a country someplace in Asia, it's always like, oh, this won't be good quality or this will be mass produced. This is the place where a lot of things are created without any consideration for 
anything. So this is to me a really, a really great way of going actually this is a region in the world, like a part of the world that has so much importance in so many different ways. We're so interconnected. And if they can do it, and if there is the willingness to implement it, then, you know, come on, let's, let's have this willingness together. Yeah, definitely. I think the perception is so critical. And I'm sorry in the back of the beat, here's some jackhammering. It's a very common sound here in Taiwan. Uh, I can't hear it. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I think perception plays a big part. I think that perception, which is based on relationships, is really critical. And that's where storytelling fits in. Um, and that's also where innovation fits in as well. So there is a sense of an opportunity of us being able to work together. But that working together is contingent of us, us willing to see each other for who we are. And having the opportunity to see the cultures and understand the reasons for why things are the way that they are in those particular spaces. And building those relationships through stories, through images, through videos, but I think through people, to people connection and through common value sets. And I think that's where storytellers can be build bridge builders in that way. Um, there are really good products that are made out of Asia. Uh, yeah. A lot of the things that come from Europe and the U.S. that say made in the U.S. and made in Europe actually come from supply chains that are linked to Asia. So no matter what, it's all linked together. So you're right. Let's all just collaborate. <laughs> this has been so great. Like, thank you so much. It would be amazing to know what what are your plans with all of the information that you're gathering well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have had the opportunity to share some ideas and thoughts with you. For anyone who's listening out there, I hope it's also given you an opportunity to think about things in a little different way. Uh, with the things that I'm making here, my partner Corey and I are hoping to have them shared through National Geographic channels and platforms. But if it's not able to go through their networks or channels, um, I have a Corey and I have a small multimedia storytelling platform um, that's named after the Chinese expression which reflects sour, sweet, bitter, and spicy, which are the flavors of life and essentially equate to the ups and downs of life. So we'll share that on our social media and on our website. Um, and again, pairing it with physical activities in the real world. So we hope to build a museum in San Diego as of next year. Um, and kind of bring these ideas of culture and environment and into a people-focused space to have discussions and share these stories, again, in the, in the physical realm. So, um, yay, Nat Geo. Yay, Swandian stories. Yay, people connection spaces. So that's kind of where it's going. So, yeah. <laughs> I would love to go to that museum. <laughs> oh, we would love to you it would be so great yeah we just applied for a grant uh to hopefully fund the inception of it um and if we get it we would love to invite you to come and be able to present some of your work would you would you build the museum out of plastic uh so it would actually be in a former reclaimed industrial space in the convoy area of san diego so we'd be reclaiming a space but some of our, our pieces would have those kind of environmental themes that's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm like really, really grateful. And I cannot wait to see more of your work. Like, I cannot wait to see your photos. I just want to hear more, like the stories of your friends. We'll actually be releasing, I think in the next one, for the next month, 
some short videos of them、okay. in the various like Taiwanese、uh, circular supply chain. So I will send them to you, and、oh、then we、goodness. can have follow conversation too. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Thank you for here so、Thank、early.、You. I appreciate it. <laughs> I was already awake, so it was fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank、um, you. Yeah. No. We will keep in touch. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm really excited to keep on having all of these different conversations. So please let me know what's interesting to you. Leave any comments or any suggestions below in the episode information section. And I cannot wait to keep on sharing different perspectives with you. Bye.